You're listening to the Biome and Central podcast. Today we're talking to Sophie Faulkner, occupational therapist from Greater Manchester Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust, to talk about her recently published study in BMC Psychiatry. Sophie, please tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. I work as a mental health occupational therapist in a community mental health team. Um, that's two days a week. And the rest of the time I'm now doing a clinical doctoral research fellowship um, with the National Institute of Health Research. So my previous work was um, about perspectives on sleep in people with schizophrenia spectrum disorders and I'm currently also developing an intervention for that population. How common are sleep problems in people with schizophrenia spectrum disorders? Well very common like actually a lot more common than a lot of people realise because people tend to think of sleep problems when they think of depression or maybe when they think of bipolar but it's not spoken about as much in schizophrenia and um, actually it's a really high percentage like exact estimates vary depending on where you look but it's much higher than in the general population like there's a big association there. And how do these sleep problems impact the day-to-day functioning and well-being of these people? Well there's kind of the obvious impacts like if your sleep pattern's irregular and unpredictable it's quite hard to um, make appointments and do do a job um, but then there's also some more like subtle effects like it could impact on your social life because you might be letting people down or even on your self-image because you're wanting to present yourself as awake and alert and in control and that's hard if you don't know when you're going to be at your most alert um, and people often end up questioning um, whether they want to call themselves lazy but I think it's a lot more than being lazy the problems that these people are facing. Currently, uh, you mentioned your research earlier in interventions. Uh, Currently, what interventions are available to improve the sleep of these populations? The most commonly offered intervention, unfortunately, is drug-based approaches, but they don't actually have a great evidence base. And um, in my study, I found that most people don't find sleeping medications actually that acceptable. They kind of see them as a last resort, but often they're offered as the first-line approach. Um, in terms of things that as practitioners we can actually be doing now, there are a number of things which we can already be trying, such as addressing the sleeping environment that someone has. You know, are they sleeping in their bed, in their bedroom? Is their bedroom actually suitable? And increasing daytime activity can make some impact, like increasing exercise, thinking about when you're exposing yourself to natural light and when your meal times are. And also, we do have rationale to be applying some of the components of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia in this population. And actually, there's been some really promising work come out of Oxford trialling like an adapted version of CBTI with these people. So the problem, though, still is lack of awareness and training in like the mental health workforce. It's not a big part of a lot of people's pre-registration training. I think that's partly what I'm trying to address with the work that I'm doing following this. So I want to develop an OT intervention for sleep in this population so that we can then train occupational therapists to address this problem. What motivated you to investigate this particular issue? Well, the first piece of proper research that I did was about the role of occupational therapists in managing sleep in people with mental health problems. Um, And a lot of people talked about um, problems with motivation in people with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder when it came to addressing their sleep. And some people kind of accepted this on face value that some people weren't motivated to address their sleep. But other therapists were a bit puzzled by this and were 
why are they not motivated to address the sleep? And, and I thought, as I think a lot of them did, that there's probably more to it. So that was the initial thing that I wanted to explore that more. Why, why might people not be trying to address their sleep if it's such an irregular pattern? So how did you choose the participants for this study? Well, it was kind of largely, actually, that they chose me um, because I did use a lot of posters to recruit. Um, I did recruit some people through gatekeepers, so I was able to do a bit of sort of purposive sampling. At one point, we didn't have enough females, so I was going to community mental health teams saying, I'd really like participants, especially females, please, at the moment. But it was a lot of just who came forward for the posters and contacted me. And fortunately, quite a diverse range of people actually came forward. And um, and luckily, we were given permission to um, approach inpatients as well, which I think is really important because they can get left out of a lot of research studies. So that means people who have a lot of time in hospital are kind of underrepresented in um, studies and especially when it's a study about views and perspectives they need to be part of it if they can be so that was good so uh, sophie could you tell us a little bit about interpretive phenomenological analysis or ipa for for short um, and why you chose this method for your study well i don't want to simplify it too much because i know there's probably some ipa experts listening um but it's it's a well it's a qualitative research methodology first of all Um, And it's a a good choice for if you want a really close focus on the individual unique experience, that's like the phenomenology part of it. And in terms of the interpretive part of it, if you want to get beyond what someone's experiencing and also look at what value and what meaning they're attributing to that and what assumptions and beliefs they're understanding those experiences through, then IPA is a, is a good way of looking at that. And also, methodology-wise, the thing that makes IPA different to some other types of phenomenology or other types of qualitative research is that you need to do case-by-case analysis. So you need to kind of try to finish analysing each individual case before you start moving on to the next one or comparing between cases. That's probably the most distinctive kind of you-must-do-this with IPA. And so I was quite awkward by wanting to then use NVivo with IPA. NVivo is a software package for um, analysing qualitative data. And people who've used NVivo will know that it immediately starts to suggest the previous codes that you've used on other transcripts. So there's like a special way you need to use NVivo to avoid it doing that. So uh, what were some of the most common experiences that arose during the interview process of your study? Well, I think a lot of normal things you would expect with people with sleep problems with insomnia um, came up. Like it was taking people a long time to fall asleep. People were complaining of daytime effects of poor sleep. But the priorities that everyone was pretty much in agreement on was sleep maintenance and sleep quality were really emphasised by participants. Like every participant I spoke to thought that was really important. Whereas with the actual length of time to fall asleep, unlike in a group of people with primary insomnia or insomnia without comorbidities, some people weren't that bothered about it taking a long time to fall asleep, which was quite unusual. So it would take them an hour or an hour and a half. And that wasn't actually their priority to change that. It was the broken sleep later on that they were more focused on. Other things were difficulty waking up was a really common problem and prolonged sort of sleep inertia. The other thing to consider is everyone, apart from one, were taking oral antipsychotics at night. So that altered the kind of going to bed 
getting to sleep experience because there was a certain point when you take a drug that you can tell you've taken and which can be sedating or can make you fall asleep. So that changed how that sleep experience is if you compare it to like sleep experiences in all the populations that aren't taking an antipsychotic. So what were some of the key concerns or issues that emerged? Well, I think that people don't always ask for help with their sleep. That came through a lot. A lot of people said they hadn't particularly had that much advice around their sleep or they hadn't had any intervention for their sleep but they weren't sort of saying, oh, well, I should have done. And there were lots of reasons that people maybe weren't asking for help with their sleep. A major thing being people thinking that it couldn't be changed, it couldn't be improved, it was an inevitable part of having their illness, whichever illness that was, that it came as part of that package and that it had to be accepted. But actually we have a lot of reason to believe that a lot of these problems can be improved. So that's a concern that people were assuming that it couldn't be helped. And sometimes people would say they had enough problems and they didn't want to count this as another problem. So it's understanding the things that might prevent people from asking for help. Because if mental health staff are a bit underconfident addressing sleep and then clients aren't bringing it up, then between those two things, it can get very neglected. So what are the implications of your, your study and your results for future service provision? I think the main thing to take home from this is we definitely need to ask about sleep proactively because people might just not bring it up for the reasons that that this study explored. Um, I think we do need to increase awareness and knowledge in the mental health workforce so that people can do that. Um, For particular professions, not for occupational therapists so much, but people who are prescribing, I think the choice of the antipsychotic and discussing timing has really significant impact on sleep so that should actually be part of that prescribing discussion I'm sure sometimes that it already is but I think that should always be a part of that discussion Um, and and in terms of policy what I really want is for next time the NICE guidance for schizophrenia and schizophrenia with substance abuse is updated that it should really mention sleep by name I think it talks about other factors that impact on, on people other social and environmental factors and it talks about other sort of additional symptoms of the disease but it doesn't actually mention sleep um, and I think that would be really good if it was it was actually explicitly highlighted there because it does have such a big impact. Um, whether improving sleep can actually impact directly on symptoms perhaps remains to be seen but we definitely know enough to say that poor sleep is a big quality of life issue and has a big impact on functioning so I, yeah, I think that whatever we can do to raise that in people's awareness is, is good. To read and hear more science stories, subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at BiomedCentral or visit our blogs at blogs.biomedcentral.com. All of our published research articles are also openly accessible on biomedcentral.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>